Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel Podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel speaker was Sky Jathani. Sky is an author, speaker, consultant, and ordained pastor. He serves as co-host of the Holy Post Podcast and is heard on radio programs around the country. He is a featured preacher on PreachingToday.com, and has served as managing and senior editor of Leadership Journal and director of mission advancement for Christianity Today. Hi, John Brown University. It's good to be back with you again. I want to talk to you about current events and how they relate to our faith in Christ, and particularly the radical callings that he has for us in the Sermon on the Mount. I remember 20 years ago being glued to my television set as I watched the attack in New York City and Washington, D.C. on 9-11. It was something out of a movie in my mind, the unimaginable, things you never thought could ever happen. I know many of you are probably too young to remember that, but it was shocking. And I had a similar experience just a few weeks ago on January 6th, as I again was glued to the television watching as the United States Capitol was being invaded and overrun by insurrectionists an event which hasn't happened since 1814. Again, one of those moments that you think, this this can't be real, this has to be some kind of scripted drama or something from a movie. Of course, it was all too real and shocking. But the difference between January 6th and September 11th, 2001, is that 20 years ago, the attack came from foreign agents. It came from Islamic terrorists. And this time it was fellow Americans, our own citizens, who felt like the country had so far departed from what they perceived to be its calling that they felt justified in seeking to overthrow the election and stop the government of the United States from certifying the Electoral College votes. The second thing that was really disturbing to me about it was that this wasn't just Americans invading the Capitol building, but it was Americans who largely identified themselves as Christians. If you saw the footage that day or have gone back and seen it in the news, you may recall that there were large wooden crosses erected throughout that crowd. There were banners with Christian symbols on them and verses of scripture, things declaring that Jesus saves and other kind of Christian paraphernalia. Lots of people in that crowd had Jesus branded merchandise, t-shirts, hats, things like that. And there's reports that have come out and video footage showing that there was Christian music playing during a lot of that rally and the attack that happened afterwards. There were even Christian ministers there who were praying before, during, and after the attack, some of them bringing, they thought, God's sanctification to this act. There were actual Christian prayers given in the dais or at the dais of the United States Senate chamber, again, justifying this attack. And when you see that mingled with calls to assassinate the vice president or to go after different members of Congress and either kidnap, kill, or even maim them in some way, the whole thing was just horrifying to see it all intermingled with Christian identity, scripture, prayers, and merchandise. Now, for those of you who are thinking, well, come on, Sky, this really, this wasn't a Christian insurrection. This was just people who were using Christian symbols, perhaps in a, in an unthoughtful way. Well, I don't, I'd like to disagree with that a little bit. And let me bring some evidence from David French. If you don't know who David French is, although you should, because I think you had him on, on your campus recently. He's a conservative columnist, an attorney, uh, former Republican. And he said this about the attack. 
Are you still not convinced that it's fair to call it a Christian insurrection? I would bet that most of my readers would instantly label this the exact same event Islamic terrorism if Islamic symbols filled the crowd, if Islamic music played in the loudspeakers, and if members of the crowd shouted Alu Akbar as they charged the capital. Indeed, there were Christian symbols, Christian music, Christian prayers. There were Christian signs throughout this attack on the capital, which killed one police officer, 140 others and couldn't be more out of phase with the message of Jesus Christ himself. This same Jesus who in the Sermon on the Mount called us to turn the other cheek, to not return evil for evil, to pray for our enemies, to love our enemies, to forgive those who've wronged us. How, how do we square the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount with the sort of Christianity that we saw displayed on January 6th? That's kind of what I've been wrestling with. I don't know if I have a great answer for it, but I want to attempt to bring you into some of my processing and how I'm trying to reconcile these things that are all part of American Christianity today. To do that, let me begin with a story about Mother Teresa. When Mother Teresa served in Calcutta, she was part of a a group of sisters of the poor, of nuns, who every day made it their custom to take an ambulance to the local train station. And they did that because during the night, poor families would often abandon their family members at the train station who were too sick to be cared for at home anymore, but they were too poor to take to a hospital. And we get found a man at the train station who was in really bad shape. He had open wounds all over his body. Maggots were literally eating his flesh. He was very close to dying. And they brought him back to the hospital. And when Mother Teresa saw him, she claimed him for herself. She stayed at his bedside all day, cleaning his wounds, trying to keep him cool and comfortable, praying on her knees next to her bed. And briefly in the afternoon, the man opened his eyes and he looked at Mother Teresa and he said, thank you. And then he died. That evening when she gathered with the other sisters for dinner, they said that she had this radiant smile on her face. And when they asked her why, she said to them, referencing Matthew 25, because today I had the privilege of caring for the dying Christ. If you recall Matthew 25, Jesus said, that which you do to the least of these, you've done to me. Mother Teresa was obviously a remarkable person and a committed Christian. She was celebrated by obviously believers, but even non-believers. She walked with presidents and kings and popes, but she spent most of her days with the poor, with street children and with the sick. What I want to suggest to you, though, is that what made Mother Teresa so remarkable was not first and foremost what she did or how she acted in the world, because I think there was something deeper, something more foundational that we need to wrestle with. You see, what made her so different was not exactly what she did, but how she saw. The way she saw the world, her perception of the world, is what defined her actions within it. Where others would have seen just a a poor man dying at a train station, she saw the face of her savior. Where other people would see scores of street children who were forgotten and worthless, she saw the children of God. Where other people would be impressed with the power of a pope or a president, Teresa saw a man in need of God's grace just like anyone else. Her vision of the world defined her actions within it, and her deep Close communion with Christ throughout her life transformed her vision to see the world as he saw it, and therefore she was empowered to act in the world as he would act. 
And I wonder if that isn't our main problem today. I wonder if that doesn't help explain why thousands of Christians can gather in Washington, D.C. for a violent attack and do it in the name of Jesus. Because we, as 21st century American Christians, simply don't see the world the way Jesus sees it. And as a result, we find the world the way he's called us to act. This isn't unique to us by any means. It's not just a modern American Christian problem. This dates all the way back to his first followers. When you read the Gospels, you see there that even the 12 who were closest to Jesus, who walked with him for years, they too had a difficult time seeing the world that he saw. For example, a woman put a few pennies into the offering and Jesus said that she gave more than anyone else and his apostles were bewildered by that. When they were arguing with one another about who would be greatest in the kingdom, Jesus brought a little child in the midst of them and said, no, 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 it's someone like this who will be greatest in the kingdom. When they were arguing about who would be first, he said, no, it's about who's going to be last that matters. When they were about prestige and power, he said that he came as a servant and that that's what makes someone truly significant in the kingdom. Again and again and again, they struggled to see things the way he saw them. Both his miracles and his parables were designed to open their eyes. He wanted them to see a world in which the first would be last, the last would be first, in which the people at the center of power and and authority in the world would actually be pushed to the margins, and it was those on the margins who would be brought into the center of God's life. He wanted them to see a world in which even a crucified and rejected king would be the Messiah who sets all the world free from sin and evil and would be given the name above all names. And yet, when the disciples again and again failed to see that kind of world, Jesus rebuked them. More than once, he quoted Isaiah and said, you have eyes, but you still do not see. I wonder if that's what God is saying to the American church today. We have eyes, we have wealth, We have churches, we have schools and universities, we have radio stations, TV stations, we have magazines and websites, we have publishers and all kinds of churches and resources. We even have his scriptures. And yet, like the apostles, do we still not see? Are we still not recognizing the world that he sees and therefore aren't acting in it the way he would act? One of the more helpful metaphors that I've I've found that I use all the time, honestly. It comes from Thomas Aquinas, the the great theologian of the Middle Ages. He talked about how when we become afraid, it draws us inward. It's a contracting posture of the soul, he said. It makes us bend inward like this. And the metaphor he used was a, a medieval city under siege. If you remember your history or even ancient history, Invading armies would come against another nation or or community, and all the people in the countryside, when they saw that invading army coming, would gather all their resources, all the food and hay and wheat and animals and water, everything they could possibly carry, and they would move into the city center behind the wall. They would shut the gate, and they would barricade themselves inside the city. The invading army would then surround the city in an encampment and lay siege to it, and the It was simply a waiting game at that point. Would the invading army have enough resources to outlast the resources that were inside the city? The longest siege in world history lasted, I think, 26 years. But Aquinas said that's essentially what we do when we are afraid. When we perceive the world as a dangerous and threatening place, we retreat behind walls. We turn inward. We circle the wagons. And we draw all of our resources into ourselves. 
And he said, from that posture of fear and paralysis, we cannot give, we can't serve, we can't love. Simply put, we cannot follow the teachings of Jesus. We can't do the things he commands in the Sermon on the Mount because we're so preoccupied with our own self-preservation and protection. I wonder if that isn't an apt metaphor for where we are as American Christians in the 21st century. We look out on the world and we see threat after threat after threat. We perceive danger after danger. Every social and political change we think is an existential threat, not just to our faith, but to us, to our families. And so in that posture of fear, we draw inward, we retreat, we withdraw, we guard ourselves, we put up a wall and barricades, and then we wonder why we find it so difficult to love our enemies, so difficult to serve others, so difficult to be generous in giving. When that fear becomes strong enough, when we really think we're not gonna outlast the siege and we don't have enough left inside the city, well, that's when things turn violent. That's when we decide we've got nothing left to lose, so let's throw open the gates, take our swords and our spears and our weapons, and let's go attack. Let's fight against those who've come against us in complete contradiction to the teachings of Jesus. I think that this fear posture, this attitude of, of self-preservation is so strong in us that even when we open the pages of the Bible, we have a difficult time taking Jesus' command seriously. I'll give you one example of this. Years ago, I was teaching a class at my own church on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And on the first day of class, about 30 or 40 adults were in there with me. We simply read through the sermon out loud together. And again, as I said, it carries many of Jesus' most uh, perplexing and important ethical teachings about not being full of anger or lust or greed and loving our enemies and not being full of worry and anxiety and giving to the one who asks of us, of not judging others. I mean, you know many of these commands. So after we read through it all, I simply asked the adults in this class, how many of you think Jesus was serious? How many of you think he actually expects us to live according to these teachings? To my amazement, nobody raised their hand. These weren't kids. These weren't people unfamiliar with the teachings of Jesus. These were all adults. I'm assuming most of them had spent probably their entire lives in the church or in some way engaged in the American Christian subculture, and not one raised their hand. So I asked them, okay, well, if Jesus wasn't serious that he expects us to obey these teachings, then what do you do with this sermon? How do you make sense of it? We had a couple of different interesting responses from people, ones that I've actually bumped into frequently since then. One person said, well, Jesus didn't actually teach these things expecting us to do them. He taught them because he wanted us to feel how inadequate we are, that we can't possibly live up to this perfect moral standard, and therefore we would fall on his grace. We would cry out for mercy. It was a way, essentially, of showing us how, how far we had fallen from perfection. Someone else had said, well, Jesus can't actually expect us to live this way because if we tried to do these things, people would walk all over us. I mean, they'd take advantage of us and clearly Jesus doesn't want us to be a doormat for anybody, right? Others have said, well, Jesus couldn't have been serious because if the church, if Christians actually followed the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, we wouldn't have any power in the world. We wouldn't have any status. We wouldn't be able to transform the world into what God wants it to be. In one form or another, I got all these excuses, all these ways of dismissing what Jesus taught us. What the problem with that is, is twofold. And these are two things I really want you to wrestle with. The first is this. 
if Jesus didn't really want us to live the way he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, then why did he live that way? This was actually a question I put to the class. I asked them, okay, if Jesus doesn't expect us to do this, then what are we supposed to make of the fact that he did? He gave to those who asked of him. He loved his enemies. He forgave them. He did all the things that he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, and it got him crucified. That kind of created a problem, because here was this group of committed Christians in church on Sunday with me and learning the Sermon on the Mount, and they wanted to admire Jesus. They wanted to exalt Jesus. They certainly wanted to worship him, but they didn't want to actually have to follow his example. They wanted to somehow believe the Sermon on the Mount applied to him, but didn't apply to them. That they could still leave and go out into the world on Monday and behave like a bully or do what the world needs done to get ahead, to use all the world's tactics of aggression and anger and, and demonization to do what needs to be done. But they didn't want Jesus to live that way. They just wanted permission to live that way. It created this cognitive dissonance for them. And my hunch is it does for us too. We come up with all these elaborate theological explanations to excuse ourselves from having to do what Jesus both said and modeled himself. But here's the second reason why I think Jesus was actually serious. Not only did he live this way, but even within the words of the sermon itself, Jesus emphasizes the importance of doing what he said. Let me take you to those verses in the few minutes that we have left. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus ends with a parable, one that you probably know. It's, it's one that's taught in Sunday school and with children all the time. He says this, Every then, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the flood, floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. What Jesus is essentially saying here at the very end of his sermon is don't be stupid. Don't be like that foolish man who built his house on the sand. Instead, listen to my words and be wise. Now, if you've heard this parable before, and like I said, you probably have, the way it was taught to you is probably the way it was taught to me as a kid. <laughs> and it's ironic because this most common parable of the Bible is one of the most famous parables is also one of the most mistaught and misunderstood. The way it was presented to me is that the wise man is a Christian. And because he's a Christian, he has built his life on the rock. And the rock is Jesus. And therefore, when difficult times come, he will endure and his house won't fall. And the foolish man who builds his house on the sand, well, he's the non-Christian. He's the one who doesn't put his faith in Jesus. And when difficult times hit him, he's going to come crashing down because his life's not built on the rock, who is Jesus himself. That sounds really good. There actually is a lot of truth in that, but it's not what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. This is really important, and I hope if you don't get anything else from what I share with you today, you get this. What Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 is that the rock is not Jesus, and the wise man isn't the Christian. He makes it explicit, the wise man is the one who hears my words and does them. In other words, what makes the wise man wise is not his tribal identity. It's not that at some point he's been a church member or that he even identifies himself as a Christian or carries a Christian flag or wears a Christian t-shirt or uses Christian prayers. 
What makes him wise, the rock on which he's built his house, is obedience to what Jesus has just taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And the foolish man isn't a fool because he's not a Christian or because he doesn't appear to be a Christian. He's a fool because he doesn't actually do what Jesus said to do in the Sermon on the Mount. John Stott talks about this parable and mentions the fact that what makes these two houses or these two people different is what is invisible. He says this, both read the Bible, both go to church, both listen to sermons and buy Christian literature. The reason you cannot tell the difference between them is that the deep foundations of their lives are hidden from view. In other words, this parable isn't about a Christian and a non-Christian. It's about two people who both appear on the outside to be Christians. It's the unseen, invisible, subterranean foundation of their Christian life, which is what you don't see. With one, it's about symbol, it's about identity, it's about metaphor, it's about looking Christian. And with the other, the unseen foundation upon which their life is truly built is obedience to the word of Jesus himself. I think that's where we are right now as an American church. I think a lot of us have built our identity around appearing Christian and, and engaging in all the Christian symbolism, just like the symbols we saw on January 6th, but actual obedience to what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount isn't there. Could it be that what we're witnessing right now, as painful and difficult as it is in the American church, is that the rains have come, the wind is blown, and our house is crashing and great is its fall because it's not built on actual obedience to the words of Jesus. I don't celebrate that. I grieve that. And I wonder if the reason why we haven't built our lives and our Christian communities on actual obedience to the Sermon on the Mount, to the words of Jesus, is because we're afraid. We've hunkered down in this posture of fear and retreat because we think that everything around us is dangerous and out to get us. When what we need is to see the world the way Jesus saw it, to recognize who's truly blessed and to whom we truly belong. And in that, finding the power to not have to go out and be aggressive against those who are against us, but to serve them. Maybe in seeing the world as Jesus saw it, not as a dangerous and threatening place, but as a God with us world in which, as he put it, not even the lilies of the field are arrayed as beautifully as God is ready to array us. Maybe we don't have to be afraid. Maybe we don't have to worry. Maybe we don't even have to fear for our lives if they're taken from us, because God will never let us go. If we see the world the way Jesus sees it, then the things he teaches us to do in the Sermon on the Mount begin to make sense. And that's what will then empower us to build our lives and our Christian communities on the rock of obedience to Jesus. That's where I am right now. That's what I'm trying to process through, trying to explain why we're in this difficult place as Christians in North America today. I think it has to do with the way we see the world, and I think it has to do with the fact that we're to actually obey Jesus and take him seriously when so many of us have dismissed his teachings as irrelevant, impractical, or not even necessary to follow. I know it's a challenging word, but as I said, I'm wrestling with it. I hope you wrestle with it too. And together, hopefully we can see a new dawning of grace for the church in North America, and we can become the people that Christ has called us to be. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your wisdom and the words that you have given us through your Son. I pray that you would take away our fear, 
Open our eyes to see that you are with us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. And free us from our own captivity, from this posture of paralysis and fear. May we not hate anyone or fear even those who have called themselves our enemy. But Lord, give us a heart of love, of forgiveness, of service, of humility, that we might truly reflect your kingdom in the world today. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God, now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, and we'd love it if you'd leave us a review.